from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks, highlights of our weekday discussion on race, segregation, and our shared humanity. Today, several perspectives on Winter Storm Elliot and the disproportionate death toll it brought among Blacks. There were not enough trucks. They didn't respond quickly enough. And then there were no emergency services available to people who were stranded in their home. The city really needs to take a proactive approach. Buffalo Public Schools to was totally shut down during that time. Um, and, and we could have maybe proactively communicated and used our schools to be hubs and, and warming shelters. So The more preventative preparation would have been helping people prepare based on their income level. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for being with us. We begin with Jessica Bauer-Walker. During COVID, even before the blizzard, she and others in the city assembled a group called Anchor, a coalition of community groups to help deal with crises like this. Tell me a little bit about the problems you felt occurred during the blizzard. I think this was really a failure of communication and our ability to leverage relationships and really work in a top-down and bottom-up way that, re- that really led to a you know citywide system fail. We could have done that differently if we had communicated more effectively. Is the argument here just that it wasn't good communication or or enough? I think that we are oftentimes working in silos. What we really need to be doing is communicating uh, across all of these entities and understanding that none of us have all of the answers or the full picture. For people that have cars, for instance, a driving ban and messaging around that might be appropriate. Uh, we are in a city where a lot of people do not have cars. And so some of the messaging that that should have gone out and that could have been informed by community would be don't go outside at all. What supports do you need to have in place so that you have adequate food and other basic supplies? Um, if you're not dealing with those experiences on a day-to-day basis, you might not know that those are the messages that really need to get out to the most vulnerable in our community. Is it safe then to say your issue with the communication is it may have been tone deaf, that it didn't embrace everybody it should have embraced? So there are effective practices in terms of disaster response, which really weren't implemented here. So the communication has to go with collaboration, has to go with coordination. It has to really be infused in that way. So part of it's communication, but you also mentioned a lack of support. What sort of support? I think that, again, we need to be communicating across systems, thinking in that manner that um, none of us have all the answers and we work in an asset-based community development model to assess needs from a variety of perspectives, really focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and thinking about who are the most vulnerable in our community who have been historically excluded. Let's make sure that we're getting our responses informed by them. And so supports need to be in place in that way. For instance, if a resident calls 311, which is the call and resolution center for the city of Buffalo, there should be a system in place that's prioritizing urgent needs. So I think we need to use our systems and the infrastructure that's available to be able to put systems in place. You know, we saw during the blizzard that everyday citizens were going out and rescuing each other. And and that's really phenomenal. We really applaud those efforts. But that's some of the work that the system should have been doing. And people were putting themselves in significant risk because they were going out working on saving each other. We're using systems like social media and Facebook to save ourselves and each other. Um, and, and we could more effectively be utilizing the infrastructure that the system has, right? There's some things that we can do on our own to prepare. There are some things we can do with each other to help one another. But there's some things that just aren't our job to do. We don't have snow plows. Buffalo Public Schools was totally shut down during that time. 
Um, and, and we could have maybe proactively communicated and used our schools to be hubs and, and warming shelters. So, Is that what you mean by schools as warming centers? Is that what you mean when you said earlier, community-based assets? Yeah, so we use this framework of asset-based community development, and it's really about mapping all the assets that we have. And some of those are infrastructure pieces, for instance, um, the schools that are around our community, and some of them are everyday relationships. And so knowing who the right people are to talk to, right, um, knowing that the, the mayor and the county executive and the superintendent, for instance, are, are very busy dealing with a lot of things. Who are the other people in those systems? For instance, um, you know, in the in the work that we were doing around organizing in an asset-based community development model, we were using the director of citizen services at the city and the deputy county executive to get a significant amount of things done very quickly. And so unless you have those relationships in place, you know, infrastructure is a part of safety. And I think we need to be focusing more on our social infrastructure and our relationships as a way to keep us safe. Is it fair to criticize the procedures during this particular blizzard. I want to play a cut of some of the defense that Mayor Brown rolled out in the aftermath of the blizzard, basically saying this was a once-in-a-lifetime event. The storm conditions in the city of Buffalo were the most adverse in all of Erie County, in all of western New York. Uh, The numbers of uh, snowfall, uh, the numbers for wind gusts, uh, the numbers of uh, sad fatalities. Every expert is saying that the major impacts of this storm were in the city of Buffalo. Uh, We worked it around the clock. Uh, We never gave up. Again, these were historic blizzard conditions. Uh, It was reported before the blizzard hit. Uh, that this was going to be a life-threatening storm. Uh, I said uh, that people should uh, not drive. Department of Public Works, uh, the police department, the fire department, the department of uh, parking, and many others worked around the clock saving lives and responding to the needs of our residents. They were the people that were on the ground in these blizzard conditions, working feverishly to get to people and to answer calls nonstop. Is that enough of a defense for you? Um, again, I want to assume good intent and that people are doing their best. And, you know, we can look at things in hindsight and say that we did better, could do better next time. This is not a once in a lifetime event. We have dealt with multiple crisis situations and we need to do better and prepare. We know for you know catastrophic weather events, climate change is real. And we've had two, quote unquote, historic blizzards just this season. And so this is going to keep happening. We are going to have other types of community crises and we need to have a, a way that we work together and respond to crisis situations and not say, oh, we didn't see that coming. We didn't see a mass shooting coming on May 14th. We don't we didn't see a, a lot of things coming, a pandemic coming. But we've dealt with multiple crisis situations and we need to get better at dealing with those as the new normal. You, you beat me to it. I was going to bring in 514. Is this a lesson after a lesson after a lesson? I know your organization did a lot of work with COVID and we'll get there in a second. To you, it sounds like it's not just the blizzard. I feel like we have just been dealing with crisis on top of crisis. Even before the the COVID pandemic, things I think have been escalating in terms of inequities and the things that our community is dealing with. And there has been just a next level of trauma and stress that has been placed on the entire world, you know, the United States, but Buffalo in particular, because it is such a poor and um, highly segregated city. 
this has really taken a toll on our community. People are dealing with trauma on all levels, historical trauma, racialized trauma, community trauma. And so we need to stop working the way that we've been working and understand we're dealing with a very different environment. It is extremely volatile. There's a lot of uncertainty and complexity and people are not okay. We have to really take a good hard look at are we making progress in terms of equity? You've used the word equity quite a few times there. To you, is this a racial equity issue or is it just a matter of rich and poor? Absolutely. We know that these things intersect. Racial equity intersects with socioeconomic equity. Um, We know from the data that folks that are white and living in the suburbs and have more means are doing a lot better in terms of the jobs that they have access to, the education, their ability to weather a storm, um, their ability not to be targeted by a white supremacist shooter. So we need to start putting systems in place where we make sure that we're prioritizing the most vulnerable in our community. We're talking with Jessica Bauer-Walker from the Community Health Worker Network of Buffalo. One of the things that they've done in the past is called Anchor. Talk a little bit about what you've done during COVID and maybe what you've learned during COVID. So back in March of 2020, when um, the the COVID pandemic broke out, there was um, myself and a group of other frontline organizations and frontline leaders who said, "We, we need to do something here. It doesn't look like there's a whole lot of movement to coordinate a response. We don't really even know what's going on here. And so we got together myself with the Community Health Worker Network and our umbrella organization of Connect, Push Buffalo, Native American Community Services, uh, Buffalo Urban League, and said, you know, we're a diverse group of organizations that we understand the community and each other. And so we can mobilize together to make sure that our community is okay. So we founded this um, coalition called Anchor, which stands for Addressing Needs for Community Health Opportunity and Resiliency. And we quickly started mobilizing, meeting every Thursday at four o'clock and bringing in all kinds of people from government officials to funders that had resources to healthcare. And it started out with just understanding what is COVID? Should we, we be wearing masks or not wearing masks and um, evolved to things like testing and treatment? I don't want to minimize the importance of not having silos, but is just getting that group of people together around a table enough? I've got to think there were other things you did, too. Absolutely. I mean, part of that is uh, is uh, the practice, I think, of community organizing, which is is undervalued sometimes. And sometimes we think about, you know, community organizers and activists on the ground working on a specific issue, you know, police brutality or something like that. And so it's not just about bringing people to the table. We're not meeting for the sake of meeting. We have these one-hour meetings and we're doing high-level community organizing. We're understanding, okay, what's the city doing? What's the county doing? What's Buffalo Public Schools doing? What are our academic partners doing? What are the funders doing? What are the community-based organizations, big and small? What are these mutual aid neighborhood pods and block clubs doing? We map that out. We have a shared understanding of what community needs are. We figure out who can bring what to the table and we start deploying resources and hold each other accountable. You know, I'm holding myself accountable too. So accountability is not a bad thing. I think sometimes the system sees our organizing and our advocacy as a, a threat. And maybe it is a threat to the, the system at large, right? It's, it's agitation. You're just stirring the pot. And that's important. I think it's important that we're engaged in some ways in principled struggle and that it's okay to disagree. It's okay to see things differently. 
I think that is one of the challenges of living in a segregated city. It's not a mystery here. We know we live in a highly segregated city and that in times of crisis, again, we find ways to work together, but then we go back into our corners that feel comfortable and we need to start getting uncomfortable. We need to start forming relationships and talking to people who don't think like us. And so that's our role. That's what Anchor does. Um, That's the role that I play as a community health worker and a community organizer is to help bring people together. And we can disagree on 90% of things, but let's find the 10% that we can agree on and work on. And when our community is in crisis, we do not have a choice but to start working together. This might be an apples versus oranges question, but you did this work with Anchor during COVID and it was successful. You were in place during the blizzard. Why didn't it work then? Is it just a matter of scope and size? Well, actually it did work. Um, I think that a lot of things that are working sometimes aren't seen. On Christmas, our anchor leaders are talking to each other. The day after, we decide we're going to call a meeting the next day. So we put a notice out on December 26 at 3.30 p.m. to call for a meeting at 1 o'clock the next day, and we have 90 people show up. So to me, that's successful, right? And, And again, we had people across leadership positions and government and multiple systems of government, large organizations like Feedmore, grassroots organizations and Facebook groups like the Bluffalo Blizzard Group who came together, understood what the needs were, and within an hour had identified key pieces like Feedmore couldn't get food out because they needed to get plowed out from their pantries. The deputy county executive was there and said, I'm sending plows right now. That that got done immediately. There was a need for warming shelters and the Code Blue initiative um, again, was having issues with getting people in and out and snow removal. And so that was deployed immediately. There was unclear messaging going to the community about how to use 911, the 858 snow, nine, snow line, um, 311. And so we were able to very quickly hash out messaging and get messages out by social media and traditional media. And so I think a lot of good things happened that were not necessarily seen. I want to go back to the administration of the first president, George Bush. He had a thing where he wanted to try and get faith-based organizations more involved with the stuff that government's doing. The old thousand points of light speech, the idea that community groups and faith groups and volunteers represent all those points of light and that it's a huge resource for any town community, or in his case, he was saying a nation. If all these community groups are so good at doing this, then isn't the government's place just to create policy and not be those foot soldiers to the same degree? Um, I think to some degree it's important to support community efforts and to understand our respective roles and responsibilities and what our scope of work is. And so I know sometimes, you know, as I'm working um, like with an individual community member, there's a situation where they're having a mental health issue. I'm not a mental health professional. I have to refer that out. I, if a a street is clogged with snow, I don't have a snow plow. I got to get the city there. I know how to leverage that, right? So I think um, really empowering community efforts and understanding systems don't quite understand the culture of community and how to empower the community. One of the things that I think we had shared agreement on um, after this past round of anchor, including the city and the county, was a commitment to work together to form neighborhood hubs. And those neighborhood hubs would have trusted community leaders, block club leaders, folks that are you know known in the community um, and that also can connect to the system. And, and so one of the things that we're talking about is, can we bring all of our resources together, share what we know, and then say, how are we going to form these neighborhood mobilization hubs? 
one of the major issues in the blizzard was that um, it had to be hyper-local, right? And so that's where the help was coming, was on this Buffalo Blizzard Facebook page to say, hey, is anybody over um, on Zelmer Street that can rescue my brother and uh, his baby who don't have any heat in the house? Oh, yes, I'm, I'm close by. I can get them over to a church. And so if we had proactively neighborhood mobilization hubs, we could make sure that we were okay. Not reactively, not once harm had happened, but proactively to say a blizzard is coming or um, an, an unexpected disaster has happened, and then we can mobilize quickly to take care of each other. And so that's one of the things that we're talking about that seems to have a lot of commitment and understanding, both on a community level as well as from the system. That, But it's going to take work. So you're not saying it's the city's fault that they weren't on Velmer, but there needed to be, or city, county, whatever, the system, as you say. But there needed to be more plan. Yes. And I think some of our efforts before we have um, had different efforts, we're, we're bringing different kinds of people together. So, for instance, we worked on a project with the Lead Safe Task Force where we had um, the city and housing inspectors paired with a community health worker who was of and from that particular community. Both frontline folks, right? Um, but our community-based organizations, they don't have the resources that the city has to do lead mitigation, right? So the city has all of these resources and all of these housing inspectors, but they're not going to have the community connection and context. And especially if there's another issue, you're knocking on the door, you're talking to somebody about lead, and guess what? There's a domestic violence situation. There's a water shutoff that happened. You know, there's a mental health crisis. And so that's where it's really important for us to work together. Um, not just one person, but, you know, who are the appropriate people to work as a team or work as a group so that we can have a really holistic approach to making sure community needs are met. You started to talk about it a moment ago. What does the ideal system therefore then look like, apart from just more people around the table, more deployment of community resources? Yeah, I like to think about that in multiple layers. I think there's been a lot of good language around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And again, when we have a situation like the massacre at Tops, there's all of these statements around racial justice and equity. Um, but the data is showing that we're not getting better in terms of racial justice and equity. And so what are the policies that are in place that ensure that, right? Is there Are there policies that can be put in place that make sure that our systems are prioritizing those that are historically excluded? We need to have practices in place that are trauma-informed and community and culturally responsive. This is not just a training. This is a way of practicing, right? L let me dissect each each chunk of that. You talked about culturally appropriate means and methods, and also trauma-informed procedures. Explain each of those. To be kind of community and culturally responsive, we want to know where that person is at and that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So for instance, I am knocking on a door and um, a Muslim woman answers, and um, I've got a white male housing inspector who wants to come in the house. That's not appropriate, right? And, and just e to even know that that's not appropriate and that that's going to make that woman in that household uncomfortable, you have to know that, right? And then you have to have somebody that can come in, right? And so oftentimes, if we're going into a particular community, um, and even in my community, maybe I'm the lead door knocker, but if I'm going into a community that's not my own, I have somebody of and from that community that's knocking on the door that ex explains to me, there's a lot of nuances in different communities and unless you know that and talk to people who are of and from that community, you won't know. So that's the culturally sensitive part. What about the trauma-informed procedures? So a trauma-informed 
process and, and way of working, um, we use this language of shifting from not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. And so sometimes we see people behaving in ways that seem very strange and unexplainable, sometimes violent. And instead of saying what's wrong with you to say, what happened to you? Because this is not a normal way that I would behave, right? And so there, there's lots of layers around trauma-informed approaches and practice, but that's kind of the essential piece to know a lot of people, particularly in our community, have had significant harm. So just to really understand, um, to be sensitive, to to know people are coming with a whole bunch of stuff and we need to a- approach them with, with care, concern, and sensitivity. What is the template? Do we need more anchors? I think we need layers of things, and that's part of the challenge is it's not a one one thing is going to save us. And I think that's what we're struggling with as a community and as a society because we're in such complex times. Community work is messy. I say that all the time that people look at like community work like it's this, oh, you're a do-gooder. Things happen. It'll be great. Yeah, it's this fun stuff. But community work is very difficult and it's a it's a practice set. And sometimes you're, you know, working on policy change. Sometimes you're sitting in somebody's house for three hours when they need help. Talk again as we close here about accountability. What sort of response have you had from government? You've been talking about these ideas for a couple of days now. Are you getting traction, do you think? I am hopeful. There's oftentimes a language of commitment initially, and then it's hard to get the follow through. So I think we're in a critical piece right now where we have to not give up. Uh, So I think that we have to continue to keep that space going. And um, that that's part of what we've really tried to do with Anchor and in terms of our relationships with the key folks across these systems is make sure that there is a, a shared accountability. Um, we're, we're transparent. We continue to put messages out there, both in terms of our internal group, making sure that there's a cohesive community narrative and accountability that we're all accountable. And when we say that we're going to do something, that we do our best to follow through and do it. How much faith do you put in the outside university review that the city is conducting? I am honestly not sure. I have asked for there to be a process that the community is involved in. I I do have some questions about it. I think it's good that they're doing it. So we'll, we'll see what happens. There should be public meetings and public process associated with that. As we close here, if there's one thing, is it basically just more community planning? What's your number one? My number one is relationships. And I know that, again, that seems um, difficult to people to wrap their head around because it is a softer type of thing. But if we're grounded in relationship to ourselves, to each other and to our community, a lot of these problems can get solved. And so I think we have to remember the social infrastructure and our relationships have to be built. That'll help us with communication. That'll help us with accountability. That'll help us with everything else because you have a trust in in the people around you and your neighbors. And there's actual data to back up that communities that are most resilient and safest are the ones that are most socially connected. Final question. Is it a lack of systems or a lack of will? Both. It's always both a combination of skill and will. Jessica Bauer-Walker from the Community Health Worker Network of Buffalo. Up next, Thomas O'Neill-White in a conversation with attorney Corinna Teft of the National Center for Law and Economic Justice and local activist Jolanda Hill. Both are part of the Fair Fines and Fees Coalition, and they look at blizzard struggles as part of something bigger, involving criminal justice and community safety. The city really needs to take a proactive approach to how 
the city approaches safety. Um, and then also just reimagining safety entirely, because I'm sure as many Buffalonians know, the city spends an exorbitant amount of money on policing and, you know, that style of keeping folks in Buffalo safe does not work. It subjects people to um, unnecessary interactions with the police. You know, as Jolanda was saying, I think in terms of the city's kind of general preparedness, I mean, they just they weren't prepared. That showed up in a variety of ways. I mean, there was, you know, number one, there was clearly a lack of any uh, blizzard response plan that was comprehensive or even like a general snowstorm response plan, which is very shocking for a city like Buffalo that gets hammered with snow. There were not enough resources invested in the Department of Public Works or anything related to urban planning to help manage the infrastructure required to deal with this level of snow removal. There were not enough plows. There were not enough trucks. They didn't respond quickly enough. And then there were no emergency services available to people who were stranded in their homes. Many folks were stranded in their offices because the driving ban was issued too late. And of course, you know, with the with the driving ban, which number one was issued too late in the game, as I mentioned, and you know left people mm-hmm. um, outside in, in dire circumstances, it was then used against people later on by instituting you know aggressive, punitive uh, traffic enforcement and roadblocks to stop people who were driving, and many of those people if not most of those people were driving to get access to resources or to come to the aid of other people in the community when the city wasn't there to help them themselves. And, you know, as Delanda said, this is really part of a longstanding pattern on the part of the city of over-investing in policing and using a punitive response to try to control what people do in Buffalo. And it, you know, not only is that ineffective, it's extremely dangerous. It put people at risk. People died. Dozens of people die. And it's something that desperately needs to change. This isn't a one-time incident in which things were uniquely mishandled with the blizzard. This is part and parcel of many years of the same practices uh, by the city, particularly by the police. You see a pattern. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. Thank you, Karina. Essentially, because the city failed to proactively have other policies in place prior to the storm. The city then relied on the police to essentially keep people safe. Um, And that is, it is not a good way to um, keep people safe, especially during a blizzard. And so essentially what the Fair Fines and Fees Coalition has been saying for several years is that the city of Buffalo must invest in other strategies and policies to keep Buffalonians safe. As a as a city, are we too reliant on each other? I mean, it's a good thing to ha- to have that, but are we too reliant in a case like the blizzard? I do think that it's good to have um, a city where you know residents come together to support each other. I do think there's something wrong, though, when residents are coming to each other's aid, supporting one another because they don't have any other options. You know, there needs to be some serious, serious systemic 
changes that, you know, need to take place within <laughs> at, at City Hall um, in various departments. One of those departments being, you know, the Department of Public Works. Like I was looking online and the Department of Public Works has about nine different areas that they focus on, including streets, including bridges, like all of these various areas. And, you know, that really, that, that's clearly an, an, an area that the city of Buffalo can, can focus on. And there was just failure after failure after failure, just, just showing that there hasn't been enough investment and there's been so much more focus on investing millions of dollars in the Buffalo Police Department. And as we know, the Buffalo Police Department absolutely does not keep Black and brown people safe. Is this a, a policy failure or is it policy as usual? I think this is policy as usual that is failing the people of Buffalo, and it's especially failing communities of color in Buffalo. You know, as Jolanda was saying, to the extent that communities are forced to rely on each other to come to each other's aid, to advocate for each other, you know, th those these are some of the tenets of mutual aid and mutual support and times of crisis in particular, as exactly as Jolanda said, very much out of necessity. And there's, at the same time, there's no shortage of people pushing back on the city for years of specific policies that have been used to target and surveil communities of color in Buffalo, especially people on the east side. And, you know, a lot of these examples come from very recent history. The school zone speed camera program that was instituted at the top of the pandemic at an incredibly vulnerable time for so many people and an especially economically vulnerable time. Uh, before that, in 2018, there were mandatory fees that the city created. There are 13 or 15 fees that the city would tack on to all traffic tickets. And then, you know, the starting around 2012, the city and the Buffalo Police instituted the vehicle checkpoint program in which roadblocks were fixed roadblocks were set up mm -hmm. at different points throughout the city. And a disproportionate number of those were on the east side of Buffalo. And when folks went through, the police would get, uh, get into a ticketing blitz. People were issued multiple tickets in one stop, sometimes for the same things, such as tinted windows. Um, and for Black drivers in Buffalo in particular, they're substantially more likely to receive multiple tickets in a single stop. And, you know, that too, that particular practice, the um, the checkpoints, as well as a lot of these traffic enforcement tactics are the subject of a lawsuit that's been going on now for four and a half years, that the city has had ample opportunity to settle in favor of the people of Buffalo in an equitable way that's fo focused on racial justice and economic justice. And they're continuing to drag the process along because they are refusing to be accountable uh, to the people and refusing to recognize that what they have deliberately been doing for many, many years is causing substantial harm. It's ex extracting wealth from some of the poorest communities in the city of Buffalo. Um, I just wanted to like circle back, like how that all connects back to the blizzard is that, right? The city of Buffalo has, you know, invested all of this, all of these resources in these types of um, policies 
under the guise of safety, when in reality, um, it's criminalizing people, it's extracting from the poorest communities, like Karina said. And as a result, that's actually undermining other more incentive, restorative, preventative-based uh, safety solutions, like investing in housing, like investing in street infrastructure, like getting more emergency equipment, having a snowstorm and blizzard plan, which the city um, didn't have. So yeah, the city definitely should be questioning like what are they investing their time and resources into? This blizzard and you know the 44 lives that were lost and my heart and my prayers go out to you know the families that are still in mourning and grieving their loved ones. This blizzard should really be a wake up call to this administration and the mayor of Buffalo and common council um, and the Department of Public Works, all of the departments to really step back and just re-strategize and reimagine and really think about what does safety mean and look like for the city of Buffalo. Yeah, and just to add to that, the the fact that the mayor instituted a looting task force in the midst of all of the crisis that was unfolding, you know, also calling people who were engaged in looting the worst of the worst, it just like really reflects a uh, confused priorities and say on behalf of the Brown administration uh, about, you know, what really needs to be addressed, exactly what Jolanda is saying about what does safety really mean and, you know, targeting people for criminal activity during an extremely dangerous time is, is not helpful, especially if you consider that a lot of folks who are positioned to be looting were very likely in desperate circumstances themselves and may have been without supplies, without aid, without food. There were in a there was an immense amount of resources that was that was put into that task force during a time where people were literally trying to find their loved ones. Like people were probably at that time still trapped in their cars. And I totally get it, right? Like these are businesses, et cetera, but we're talking about systemic issues. Like it's not a good look for the city of Buffalo. And then to call folks the lowest of the low as the world is watching was just unacceptable. How do you feel about the city doing a blizzard impact study through NYU and then uh, South District Councilman Chris Scanlon's blizzard resolutions? The city's response to the blizzard and the aftermath should be studied. But the question becomes like, why didn't something like this exist before, right? Like, cause, and then as far as uh, Scanlon's, uh, Councilman Scanlon's resolution, yeah, I think that that's the same thing. Like these types of initiatives, they're great, but they're just almost a little too late. These are basic things that should have already been in place. Yeah, and I kind of think it's the least the city could do. At this point, it's kind of the bare minimum is looking into what happened, as I totally agree with Jolanda, that this all should have happened ahead of time. And I think both of us share the concern, though, that any investigation about, you know, how the blizzard management or the lack of management of the blizzard played out and the subsequent fallout, making sure that whatever research and analysis goes into that, that it is seen in this broader context of systemic problems with the city, that it's not just treated as an isolated incident and an isolated failure uh, that can be remedied going forward. And I guess the uh, other question is too, is 
and NYU is a, you know, a great um, institution, but there are like local, you know, um, organizations and institutions here in Buffalo that could also work with the mayor, right? It's a perfect time to work with the local organizations to conduct that study. We've got uh, a few minutes left and I wanted to ask uh, Jolanda uh, a pretty simple question from where you're sitting, what does Buffalo need? That's a, I know it's broad. <laughs> a pretty broad question. I would say that Buffalo needs overall just systemic change that addresses the root issues um, of a lot of the you know problems that we're we're seeing. We need a city government that understands and acknowledges that we have to just reimagine how we approach, um, yes, approach safety, but how we approach housing, the housing crisis in Buffalo, how we approach uh, food insecurity, um, a food apartheid, like all of these various areas that really impact the quality of life for black and brown people, but just, you know, Buffalonians overall. Jolanda Hill from the Fair Fines and Fees Coalition along with attorney Corinna Teft from the National Center for Law and Economic Justice. This is Buffalo What's Next. Producer picks a second chance to hear important interviews from our daily program. The full interviews are on demand at WBFO.org. We close today with Jillian Hainsworth. In the days after the blizzard, the city's poet laureate took to social media with a lot of observations on how the blizzard was handled. When you look at poverty, the people who are in the most impoverished communities are always the ones that are impacted the most. And we know that in the city of Buffalo, the people on the east side of Buffalo and some people on the west side of Buffalo are the people with the lowest income levels, the highest poverty rates, the, the worst quality water, the least access to food. Like these are people who are already stuck in survival mode on a daily basis. The storm just exacerbated the issues. They just made the issues cold. But these issues exist already. So of course we were gonna see them during this blizzard. And I noted uh, during, during the blizzard, there were a lot of people, Governor Kathy Hochul, County Executive Mark Polenkars, Mayor Byron Brown, who during one of their briefings on Monday after the storm hit, uh, said, no, we've done everything we can. We urged people to prepare. Mm -hmm. Your argument is it's tough to prepare hard to have two weeks of food on yourselves when you're living paycheck to paycheck. Correct. Food is expensive. And then the storm happened at the end of the month, so people who get assistance to help pay for their food, that assistance has already run out. They're waiting for the next check. They're waiting for the next their next food stamps. Um, and then it's a holiday, so people already spent their money just trying to keep a sense of normalcy in their homes. If you are at a lower income level, keeping two weeks worth of batteries is not even an option. Like. Batteries, that's so expensive. Like, I don't have any batteries at my house right now. So it, it was very tone deaf and it just, it made me feel like they are very out of touch with the day-to-day -day struggles that a lot of their constituents are dealing with. Some of the things you're talking about though are systemic. Yes. And systemic problems would require, to my mind, a lot more lead time, a lot more things in place that you couldn't just necessarily put together when a storm is coming. 
Correct, correct. A lot of our issues here, when, especially when it comes to race and poverty, are systemic. These are issues, I'm 30, I just turned 30 in November. These are issues that we've seen exist for over 30 years in this community. Um, so there has to be an infrastructure built that helps to insulate the people from things happening. There was no plan, there was no infrastructure, there are no policies that says, hey, grocery stores, if we are preparing for a huge natural disaster, you can give food away, the food in the grocery store away, because the store is gonna be closed anyway. Or restaurants, um, in New York State, most shelters, homeless shelters, can't accept food from restaurants. So why? You know, we have restaurants that are willing to open their door to help feed people. We need to be able to have some kind of contingencies in our laws to make it easier for our people to help each other, but also for accountability. So when we don't get helped, we're not just here picking up broken pieces. Like, somebody has to, has to take has to carry the fact that so many of these lives were lost because nothing was done to prevent them from being lost. Put it in a broader context for me. Obviously, a lot of what we talk about in this program is the shootings of 514. Mm -hmm. I heard you say right after the shootings a lot of the same things you are saying now. Yeah, the people are still starving. They were starving before then. And it, it goes back to feel the feeling of our our leaders not understanding us and not knowing us because a lot of these issues we've been screaming hey like look at us look over here we're hungry we don't have resources we can't get our kids to school and our kids that are going to school can't read and the ones that can read can't retain information like hey we can't get jobs our housing is poor which leads to every other issue that we see happen in our communities like we've been screaming look over here we're right here and no, nothing has been done. Nothing on a policy level has been done. It's this feeling of like, we're stuck. And at, at some point, you know, community members started going out and risking their lives while we're being told help is not coming. Like, there's no way for, for a fire truck to get to you if your house is burning down. It's such a disservice. Like these people here, we deserve so much better. Share a couple of stories of the kind of community response you saw. I know so many people in my own community that were posting their addresses saying like, hey, if you are stuck outside or if you don't have heat, I have heat, here's my address. I even saw on, there's a, a Blizzard Facebook page that had like tens of thousands of members. And one of the members owns an office building in Lackawanna and he posted the code to get into the building. Like, mm -hmm. hey, it's gonna be locked because the, the building is closed. Here's the code, you can get in. Like, if you're stuck, go in there. And the fact that we were offering each other shelter when the city had four warming centers and two of them lost electricity, it's like, what are we doing here? Like, the people were heroes, but at the same time, the people were failed. And we have to be honest about that. I wanna play devil's advocate. Two, two questions that I think get to that. Yes, more than uh, about half of the people who died in Erie County were black. But if we look at the population of the city of Buffalo, and if we look at the fact that the blizzard hit Buffalo pretty hard compared to other areas, can those numbers be discounted? No, because like you said earlier, like we also have to look at this at, in a broader spectrum, right? And we have to look at historically what's been happening in our communities. We have to look at the fact that the storm's over, the snow melted, but there's still no plan. Looking at it from a, a macro level, black people in Buffalo, black and brown people, but especially black people, 
are historically excluded. We're, his, we're excluded from, from being kept safe. We're excluded from progress. We're excluded from building wealth. And that is an issue. And the blizzard was just one manifestation of the larger issue. Devil's advocate question number two. The death of 10 people didn't change things. Did you really think a blizzard would? I, I don't necessarily think that the blizzard would change things. I really hoped and prayed that the death of 10 community members at the hands of a, a terrorist would. What I do see cha the change happening is I see more community being built. I see people kind of coming to this understanding that even if we can't lean on the people that are in office, we, we know we have each other. Like we know that people will take food out of their refrigerator to put it in my refrigerator if I don't have anything. Building community is really important because once we can build community, we can build an understanding of each other, we can build empathy without condition, then we can start to work together to have a unified message and demand change. But if people in South Buffalo don't understand the plight of people on the east side, how are we all gonna vote for the same people? Like, how are we gonna know what we need as leaders if we're not understanding what's happening in other communities outside of ours in one of the most segregated cities in the country? You just did something interesting. I've heard the discussion, obviously, people from South Buffalo don't know people from the east side. You put it in a political context. How do we know who we're supposed to be voting for if we don't know each other? That, that's an interesting twist on the equation. Yeah, and I remember after May 14th when I would speak at different events, I'd say, raise your hand if you had to use your GPS to get here. And, of course, people will be predominantly white people will raise their hand, and it's like you don't see the color and the beauty of us. You don't see what's actually happening in these communities. So how can you, how can you know what leader is good for a community that you've never visited, you know? So, so we, now that we're building community, we're gonna be able to build a better understanding of what people outside of our direct neighborhoods need. And hopefully we'll use that to inform ourselves when we go to the polls. Is it a bad thing that government isn't doing it and therefore people have? Uh, talk a little bit about the role of each of those groups. Community stepping forward, a good thing, to what degree do you feel government should also be doing so, or are they allowed maybe not to because the community is advanced? The community being willing to help each other out will always be a good thing in my eyes. The community having to risk their lives to help each other because government won't do it is never okay. Somebody's not doing their job, and the person that's not doing their job is still cashing a check, and we're still broke. You know what I mean? Like, we have to put it in that context. We have to remember that when we pay taxes, we're trading away certain liberties for protection, for safety, and we are not being protected. So, yeah, we have each other's backs, and that's great, but we should not be in positions where we have to risk our lives to help each other while those who are leading us stand on, in a camera and say, well, we told you. I don't know. Should have had two weeks' worth of batteries. That'll never be okay. Never. So uh, to you, it's, it's the way they presented it? It's the tone rather than the lack of policy? It's both. It's the lack of policy. That's the biggest issue, the lack of policy, the lack of preparation. But knowing that they did not prepare and then standing on a camera and taking that tone was like a slap in the face. And that is also a big problem for me because I saw people 
like I said before, risking their lives. To the city of Buffalo is going to undertake a review. They've hired an outside university, New York University, to look at things. Are you optimistic? Is that the kind of thing that will help, or is that just something that will say, oh, gee, we have problems? Um, number one, we already have had a bunch of studies done to show the issues that we have here. Henry Taylor, Dr. Henry Taylor already... The harder we run. Exactly. So, number one, where are y'all getting this money from? Like, who are, why are you hiring people to tell you what we already know? We've been, again, we've been saying, hey, look at us, look over here, pay attention. Why are you hiring people? How much are you paying them? Where are you getting this money? And where else could we be using it? Because when we look at how we budget, budget is the best indication of priorities. So the same people that didn't, that need workforce development resources, the same people that just need somebody to show up on their front porch with a shovel, like those people are still gonna be in need while you're hiring someone to tell us what we already know. I don't, I don't understand it. And I'm hoping that we learn something new but as somebody who has lived here and who has worked in this city for my entire life and who has read multiple studies by different urban planners and, and political leaders, I, I don't necessarily think that that's a step we had to take. I think it's one of those like, look, we're doing something. We're going to figure this thing out. But again, the people are still starving. You framed it almost as two different things, ongoing symptoms and broader disease. Is it a good idea to treat the symptoms, more pantries, more community fridges, and we can get to that in a moment, um, more services, or how do we, should we address the bigger issue? If people are dying in a blizzard, I could almost see the argument, almost see the argument that the symptoms, at least in the here and now, are more important and should be addressed rather than the broader systemic racism disease. So I think historically in Buffalo, we see the people take care of the symptoms, right? After the, the shooting in Tops, people pulled together, organizations pulled together and made sure people were able to get groceries, people were able to get medications and diapers and formula. I think ideally, our government would help equip our community leaders with the tools to address the symptoms while they do the work to address the disease. Because it has to be a yes and, because if we only address one, there's still gonna be all of these lingering issues that are brought on by the other. And that's the thing, I think a lot of times our leaders don't realize that the community, we're willing to be your partner. We're willing to collaborate because we live here. Like We have to live here. We can't just pack up and leave Buffalo because we don't like the way the mayor spoke at a press conference. Like We're here, so work with us, partner with us. Tell us the resources you have, and we'll tell you what we have, and we'll figure out how to, how to treat the symptoms in our direct neighborhoods while you do the work to target the disease, because that is what you are supposed to be doing. Common Council, you're our legislative body. That's what you're supposed to be doing. We don't need you to do a food drive, because we know how to do food drives. We can do a food drive. We need you to get into that office close the door, sit down, be honest with each other about what's happening, and write legislation. Like, I think we're, we're mixing what, who's supposed to be doing what sometimes. I, I see community members all the time saying, we need this legislation. Look at this law that passed in this state or this policy that's being enacted in this state. Do that here, do that here. And at the same time, we're doing food drives and we're doing barbecues and pop-up you know, shops to make sure our community has what they need. 
imagine how much smoother this could go if we were able to help address the symptoms and we could trust that the disease was being addressed by those who are literally getting paid to do it. Buffalo Poet Laureate Jillian Hainsworth is with us. We're talking about the aftermath of the blizzard, winter storm Elliot, 39 deaths in Erie County, 18 of them people of color. I get what you're saying about their job, your job, but what would you recommend that they do? Community can take care of symptoms. How do we address, how should they address the disease? Well, like I said, we need, um, we need more land trusts. I'm gonna talk about Buffalo specifically. Um, we need more land trusts. Um, if people, especially on the east side, can start to build wealth, like that will really, really help. There are so many people on the east side who can't even afford to buy the house they've been renting for 20 plus years. Like we need ways to make sure that people can own their homes, people can start new businesses. We need ownership. We need to expand the African Heritage Co-op because we need our own grocery stores. Like we need them to take those same, um, you know how when developers come into Buffalo, sometimes it seems like they have such an easy time building a new apartment complex. Those same, like, I don't know even how to, what to call it, but shortcuts, I guess, the same shortcuts that these major developers are getting that the people don't even know about, like, care about us too, care about us first. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're saying there should be as much incentives yeah. at the city level for development on the east side as there is in downtown. Yes, in development by black and brown developers, by black and brown construction companies, like employ our people. I know people personally who have tried to, to start their own companies where they want to develop grocery stores and shopping plazas and they cannot get past the red tape. Why, you know? Uh, that, that developer issue might be a little harder though because developers are who they are because they have the money. And a lot of this discussion so far has been that the black community doesn't have that generational wealth, that, that there haven't been ways for them to build it because of the segregation, because of the disinvestment. Um, how do you develop a black developer? Um, number one, the city has to give some money. The city needs to provide land trusts. They need to say, we have 300 empty lots on the east side that we don't even take care of. We don't even mow the lawn on these lots. So, okay, we are gonna sell them to you for $1 because the city can sell property, homes that they own for $1. We need to start making it easier because believe it or not, a lot of these people between, especially in the black community, will pull their resources together, pull their, their money together to create our own. But again, if they're not given the chance, we can never create. Additionally, there are so many people who own property in Buffalo who are sitting on it, hoping that a developer will come to them and buy it from them. Next to, around Tops on Jefferson, there are empty lots. And I have a friend who contacted the man who owns one of those lots. He does not live in Buffalo. And he's like, how much are you, will you be willing to sell this lot for? Like, this is right after 514. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, like, we need to... We need to develop, and I have money. Here's how much capital I have. I can build what my community needs if you're willing to sell this lot. And he was like, listen, I'm trying to sell this lot to somebody building, like, luxury condos. Someone who will pay me lots of money. Right. 
And that should not be okay. Like at that point, we should have people in the city, urban planners, advocates who can step in. We know we can't make anybody sell their property, but the fact that you and I are sitting here having this conversation about how do we do this when there are people who got paid and are elected to figure this out, that's a problem. Like, that's a problem. Like, I can't give you a full layout of everything that will solve the issues, right? It's just, it's not what I do. I'm, yeah. I don't have the knowledge. But there are people who have been in government here in Buffalo for years, for years. And we're not asking them the same questions. Bottom line, I think we can summarize your remarks by saying poverty and lack of investment is what killed people during the blizzard? Absolutely. Poverty and lack of investment killed our community members during that blizzard. And if nothing is done, we are going to continue as we see weather patterns get more and more intense. We are going to continue to have to bury our neighbors and nothing gets done. And I, I will say that I did see a couple common council members, Darius Pridgen, he went live for hours one of the nights trying to connect people with needs to people who can provide those needs or supply those needs. But at the same time, <laughs> write some legislation, sir, because these issues, again, these are symptoms. Disease can be addressed by policy. The symptoms can be addressed by service. Let me pick up that broader discussion, though. Um, you talked earlier about the guy from South Buffalo who probably does not have any understanding of the east side, let alone the guy from East Aurora, Elma, Arcade, Darien. Even with lawmakers who have the right policy approach, you've got to have some sort of attitudinal shift there. And I'm not sure that that's something that people can even conceive of. Yeah, you're right. I do think that that is a big issue here. And I think the remedy to that is, is we vote them out. And again, that goes back to making sure the community understands each other. Because if somebody in South Buffalo understands, hey, every time we have a bad blizzard, people on the east side are going to die, that might make them reconsider. So as long as we continue to build this community, I'm confident that we can rally together. But um, when it comes to, to policymakers not being able to change their mindset, you just got to go. You have to go. We're not here to, to help you understand us. Like, you got voted into office under the, the premise that you would be willing and that you already understand us. All right, but what about the lack of understanding? Insert East Aurora, again, insert Arcade, generic white suburb. Yeah, I, I think a big part of that is people have to be willing to step outside of what they're comfortable with. Um, after the storm, myself with the Thurman Thomas Foundation, Every Bottom Covered, and Give Buffalo... They planned this amazing event where they, they had Bill's Mafia, they called them Snowplow Mafia, and they came to the east side, to Delavan and Grider, and they shoveled. And they would go from street to street, shoveling complete strangers' homes, helping dig their cars out. I walked down one street, and I was, I was carrying a case of water. And I'm like, hey, you guys need any water? And they were like, oh, no, he already gave us some coffee. And there's just like this like older black guy standing in the doorway, and they're all just like standing around drinking coffee out of like red solo cups. <laughs> and it's like the sense of community that you feel in, in Kimmore or in Orchard Park, like that's here. You just have to be willing to come here. And like we have to know that we're safe to come there. We can't continue this like segregation. Like if you're black, you come on the east side. And if you're white and Italian, 
get over to, to North Buffalo hurdle. It's so stereotypical and we are all everywhere. So I think it's, a, it's a twofold. Like we have to be willing to welcome people into our communities and they have to be willing to come. Buffalo's Poet Laureate, Jillian Hainsworth, brings this program to a close today. You can listen to full episodes of Buffalo What's Next on the WBFO app, online at WBFO.org, and we're a podcast, too. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for being with us.